I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. In 2000, American science fiction writer Octavia Butler said of her book Kindred, quote, If a Kindred movie is ever made, I wouldn't be involved. It won't be my movie, and I suspect it won't look much like my book. Movies don't usually look much like the books they're taken from, do they? 23 years later, Kindred is on the screen. American playwright Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, the two-time Pulitzer finalist and MacArthur Genius Grant awardee, has adapted Butler's 1979 novel in an eight-part FX series on Hulu. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on November 12th, Jacobs Jenkins and I get deep in the weeds of the Kindred plot, why he thinks TV and movies have, quote, damaged our ability to understand history, and what he is ultimately trying to show about slavery. The experience of enslavement is, yes, enforced by violence, but there's a slower, almost crueler violence that's just about a, a daily reminder that you're just a passenger in your own life, that your own existence is in service of someone who claims to own you. Well, thank you for being here. So that quote I read from Octavia Butler, um, she was talking about a movie, but you turned Kindred into a television series. Why that medium and why was Kindred right for it? Yeah, um, you know, I think, you know, Kindred has, is the one book of hers that's been under constant options since 1979 when it was published. And all that time they kept trying to make a movie. So there's clearly something about the film uh, form that wasn't quite doing the job of translating what the book was up to ultimately. And um, I, you know, when I first pitched this and began pitching it, television was sort of in the throes of what we now call its golden age. Um, and people were kind of realizing that there was something new happening in this form that has always been interested in sort of time and the experience of time of being with people, um, of witnessing people grow over years and years, as opposed to just kind of two hours with a good, good bowl of popcorn in front of you. Right. And in fact, in an interview, I think with Deadline, you said, guys, it's a TV show. Uh, and to your point, making the, you're able to show the, the transformation of these relationships and intricacies of these relationships when you spread it out over, oh, say, eight, eight, eight parts as opposed to yeah. as opposed to hours. You know, Brandon, one thing, instead of 1976, the story takes place in 2016, which was a polarizing year in America, as we all remember. What Turns other creative out, yeah. changes? Yeah. What other creative changes did you make to Kindred? And what was most important for you to keep? Mm, that's a great question. I think uh, everything sort of was sprung from this choice to set it in 2016. So, you know, you kind of shift things about 40 years and you realize there's like very significant uh, transformations and cultural mores, especially around kind of accepted behavior within relationships, um, gender expectations, what it is to be a part of a creative class looks very different than it did in 1976, which is when the book was set. Um, and so everything we kind of had to do was about dealing with this bigger choice, right? To try to make the story more immediate, to have it sort of sit in the audience laps and not risk becoming somewhat of a museum piece, because that was really in honor of Octavia's original impulses, which just was to write this story for her audience for her contemporary moment. We really tried to take that that task on. Um, in terms of what we kept, you know, I, for me, I'm I would argue that there's maybe no bigger fan of this book than I am, especially at this point when I've read it like 
a trillion bajillion times. But um, but it was important that someone who knows the book could read, could follow what we were doing, right? I was interested in sort of expanding the universe or always kind of, you know, I don't love things that kind of when they're adapt when they're adaptations, they kind of want to replace the book. I like things that sort of send me back to the book with different questions or different thoughts, you know. And we really wanted to think about how maybe we were doing a kind of remix or uh, interpretation of the book that if you knew the book really well, you would sort of, it'd be another layer of meaning for you in some of the choices that we were making. And that meant keeping all of the, you know, these characters who you kind of grow super attached to in the book, maintaining these sort of um, central relationships between people that felt like the heart of the metaphor that she's ultimately working out um, about American life and American American psyche, you know, we kept the same location. I really loved that she said it in Maryland, which is, you know, I'm from DC, so I'm from the DMV area, um, as opposed to the kind of portrait of slavery or the settings we're used to, which are sort of usually like Plantation Alley in Louisiana or the right. hills of Georgia. There was something about reminding folks that, you know, slavery started somewhere and it definitely started closer to the nation's capital than people want to remember. Right. And when I think of Maryland, I think of probably the two of the most famous um, former enslaved people, Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, yeah. know, ran for their freedom from from the eastern from, shore, in, from Maryland. Yeah, um, and I'm yeah, glad you, they don't get more famous than that. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, I take your point on, you know, using the, the series to maybe drive people to the book, because I have not I have not read Kindred. But as I was watching the series, I was thinking, you know, I really should pick this up and, and, and read it. <laughs> Wait, so, so Brandon, um, as we saw in the intro video, Dana doesn't time travel willingly. Uh, we have a clip of her first trip back in time. Let's take a look and I'll talk to you about it on the other side. Sure. You going back to bed. Child will never learn to sleep through the night if you keep disturbing him like this. He was on his stomach. I turned him over. Hello? Who's there? I said, who is that hiding there? He's, he couldn't breathe. I turned him over. Who is that? Estena. And that's in the first, <laughs> that is in the first episode. And when I saw that, I was like, what the, what is happening here? You find out why she screams like that later. Um, but talk about who that was, who Dana encounters in that very intense scene and how does that set the tone for the journey? Yeah. Yeah, so this is, I mean, speaking of sort of interventions or alterations on the book, um, this character that she's encountering, we realize is a woman named Olivia who turns out to be our hero Dana's biological mother who um, underwent a similar uh, 
phenomenon around Dana's age. And in that version was interpreted as having disappeared from her family's life um, or died actually. So there is this sort of uh, story that emerges in our version that is almost a rescue mission as Dana is sort of putting together why this very strange thing is happening to her. She's also kind of unraveling a bit of a family mystery or a family story that sits in the backdrop of this. Mm -hmm. um, in, in watching the, um, right, okay. This show was so, your series is so fantastic. Um, we saw there Olivia, we see Dana, but there's another person who figures prominently in the story and that's Kevin. Oh, and, yes. uh -huh. and, talk, and, and talk about the role, the role of Kevin in the, in mm -hmm. the importance he plays in, in this journey. Yeah. So, you know, in the book, Kevin is Dana's husband. And this has been an interesting uh, controversy amongst the kind of diehard kindred fans uh, <laughs> who've encountered the series. But in our version, we've really walked their marriage all the way back to a bit of a meet cute. So he's a guy, a kind of cute guy Dana meets, like the very beginning of our pilot, actually, and winds up going on this sort of like moony date with him. Um, and they evolve into a very quick, what people have called like a situationship. Um, and this happens to, unfortunately, fortunately coincide with the worsening of this phenomenon. So she winds up actually in the course of our first season, bringing him back with her. Uh, and, and when they're both kind of trapped in the past, there's a, almost a strange sort of upstairs, downstairs uh, thing that emerges because Tim, he's, uh, if I've mentioned already, he's a Caucasian identified male. You know, he's having a very different experience of the past than she is. And it's actually that kind of disjunct in their experience and their inability to sort of see through each other's eyes or see the past through each other's eyes that actually creates a lot of interesting tension and really puts pressure on this love relationship uh, that seemed to be underway between them. You know, I would often say that this is like a love story that's trying very hard not to become a horror story, you know, but he does provide an interesting sort of counterpoint to the ways in which even now we're so divided about our perceptions or point of views on this history. You know, it's so, you know, our, we're, we're geared as human beings to, to project into the experiences of those in the past, but um, the people that it's easier for us to project into might be having a very different experience in that, of that past than, than someone else. And you know, that dynamic between, uh, between Kevin and Dana is the thing that, that um, made me stay with it. I'm gonna explain what I mean by that in a moment. But in watching the, the experiences through their respective, through their eyes, particularly Kevin's, as a white man thrust back to a time when his authority was unquestioned, and then watching him as a 21st century, 21st century white man looking at 18th century white men and what they were doing and able to get away with and just see how he grapples with that. But then the compromises he makes for the, for the larger mission that he and Dana are on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's all about sort of how it's easy for us to assume that we know, we know with the, you know, the gift of hindsight, we know what we would do if we were back there. 
But actually, those things are impossible to do because what you're what you want to do is so far from the norm that it actually puts you in danger to think like yourself. And I think you know some of Kevin's best moments are when he's trying. He you know he acknowledges he has a kind of power and an agency that Dana doesn't, and he has to figure out the best way to deploy it right without mm-hmm. causing any damage. You know. Um, and it's odd because I, my experience of watching the show, and I think this was the experience of the writers as we worked on it, like it's, he really, because like you said, he's, his positionality gives him such freedom that it's almost absurd. And there's times when it's almost comic with him. And that comedy is so much harder to access when you're talking about the people on the other side of the tracks. You know what I mean? Um, and it does create an interesting kind of tonal game with the show that uh that i think is one of the more interesting thing, interesting things about it you know well well yeah because you know finding comedy in a situation where the person is thrust back to slavery times and the horrors that he has to witness um that they both witness um with the, with their own eyes let's flip to dana because we watch her go from being this very sort of 21st century assertive woman when she goes yeah, back the first time. And, yeah. and then as the series goes along, she, those edges are softened in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Or am I misreading that? No, no. I mean, that's, you know, there's a great line in the book where, you know, the, the book is written from Dana's point of view, so it's in first person. And she's startled again and again about how easy it is to become a slave. You know, that she showed like she shows up just like in our series, kind of headstrong, entitled. No one's going to tell her she's not going to get what she wants, you know. And of course, you know, it's a death by a thousand cuts. The experience of enslavement is, yes, enforced by violence, but there's a slower, almost crueler violence that's just about a, a daily reminder that you're just a passenger in your own life, that your own existence is in service of someone who claims to own you, you know. And I do think that there is an interesting, you know, her struggle to lean, to allow that to happen is is the great struggle, I think, of her, of the series for her. You know, how does she kind of squirrel away these moments to feel like a human again? And like, what does she do with the everyday kind of atrocities and traumas that she's subject to, big and small? Like, she doesn't have a therapist, right? She doesn't, she can't call up her best friend, you know? And, and at the same time, the things that make her her, you know, the way that she speaks, the kind of her literacy even are things that make it impossible for her to fit in with who she would consider her skin folks. You know, she's sort of having to assess her privileges, privileges she never even allowed herself to think about having, you know, just, just in order to survive this experience. And, and, um, and I do want to come back to why I said um, I almost didn't stick with it. But we have to talk about the present, the present day people, the neighbors mm-hmm. who we saw mm-hmm. in the, who we saw in that intro video. Talk about their role in in this story, even though they don't time travel back. Right. Well, you know, one of our one of the stranger parts of the conceit is that time is moving at a different pace. Um, it's sort of similar to that movie Inception, if people know it, where she can be in the past for like days at a time, but when she comes back, only like minutes have passed in the present. So this thing keeps happening where she's having this experience of being trapped. She's there for weeks and weeks, but she keeps coming back to the same day that she left. 
and that and her point of view on that day keeps changing and things keep escalating in that time because no one seems to understand what she's going through. And I think the biggest um, kind of holders of that point of view are her neighbors. Uh, she's So Dana's moved into a brand new house. So she's a brand new neighbors. They don't really know her. They're meeting her this night. And, uh, you know, the, the the phrase Karen has been bandied about in discussing them. I, we are definitely like pre-Karen in terms of like our timeline. Um, but there are people, who, we were very inspired, honestly, in the writer's room by this phenomenon of something called the Nextdoor app, which was this app that people realized was revealing the problematic or, or bigotry, that the, the, the bigotedness of their neighbors that they never thought about because it was suddenly about surveillance and anxiety and they were misreading people simply because of their race, even though they were their neighbors. And we were just interested in having people who had eyes on this event, who we as viewers know is a crazy, supernatural, like extraordinary thing. But to these people, they're, they think it's everything but, right? They think that what's happening next door seems like it can slot itself into any number of kind of racialized and uh, gender tropes, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting to see over the course of the series and if they are able to gain allies, right? If there's a world in which they can make Dana's literal home a living hell for her uh, just by being um, unwelcoming, you know, mm-hmm. or an unsympathetic to what's happening. Yeah. And, 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 and I have to say that as terrifying as the, the scenes are when Dana and Kevin are there in 1800 slavery America and the horrors that they're watching, as hard as that was to watch, for, for me, even more uncomfortable to watch was the interaction between Dana and her next door neighbors. The, the, the house is in Los Angeles and she just moved there mm-hmm. from, from Brooklyn. So here you have in Los Angeles, these people who, you would think maybe are, you know, West Coast liberal types, and yet they're all up in Dana's business. Well, because they hear shrieking coming from next door. But still, <laughs> <laughs> but still yeah. Okay. There's no boundaries. Yeah. Right. Right. So, Brandon, um, let's come back to why the the whole um, why I almost didn't stick it out in 2017. Roxanne Gay wrote that despite being, quote, exhausted by slavery narrative stories like Kindred, that stories like Kindred remind me why there are still stories from that era to be told. Um, Why must these stories be told? And I bring this question up because in in a a profile or an interview in Vulture last month, I can't, I, I messed up the notation here. I can't remember if this comes from you or the writer saying that people are sick of trauma porn um, and goes on to say, this makes it a tricky time to adapt Kindred. And the first episode has the daunting task of drawing people in enough to keep watching. And when Jonathan Majors was here, I told him, I love Lovecraft Country, but I can't finish it because it's just too hard. And the first two episodes of Kindred were really hard. I watched the first episode and said, nope, can't watch the second one, need some time. Watch the second one, it's like, nope, I can't watch the third one, need some time. But I went back and watched the third and finished it. Because it was, it pulled me in and it was that good. So talk about why, why should we stick with it? Why should we stick with um, not just Kindred, 
but slave narratives from from the the country's yeah. slaveholding era. Yeah, I think you know it's such an interesting. I get to ask this question a ton, obviously, not just even in this television work, but you know, I think it's worth pointing out that this is only a question people ask black creatives, right? There's only, it's only black creatives who get told there's a quota on the stories that you want to tell mm -hmm. about your own history, you know? And the truth is like, you know, why Kindred was such a profound book for me and still is, and why it's been the honor to make this show is that like, it was the first book I ever finished that felt like it was actually talking directly to me, right? You're, you're in conversation with someone who has both black and white ancestry who identifies as black, and that ancestry is complicated, and they're not, surprise, surprise, love relationships as far as they're passed down through generations. And, you know, storytelling is, at its finest, is supposed to be the place that we all can gather and assess our values and really ask ourselves real questions about who we are and where we come from. And I fear that when we talk about, you know, not telling stories about slavery, what what do we why are we not telling those stories like is there a shame that we're running from about this material you know i can understand like not wanting to enter it every time and feel the effects of physical trauma you know witness one female character after another sexually assaulted and that's definitely a um an aversion i have as a viewer right i think one of the big statements I made to my writers early on is that I wasn't interested. I, I wanted to, there's already enough work out there that talks about the absolute gory degradation of slavery. And that was a reality of that system. But I think when we make work just about that element, we lose sight of the fact that this was a pervasive way of life for people. This is the thing that most people thought they were doing good within that system. They thought, you know, most slave owners thought they were good people, you know? And that and the things that were happening day to day, the things that, you know, day, like um, Octavia Butler said, you know, she, she wasn't really interested in runaway stories. She wanted stories of the people who stayed, right? She wanted stories of survival. And that to me is about giving ourselves a fuller sense of what the lives of these people were like. You know, how do we empathize more purely, you know, with, the, with our ancestors, with the people who came before us, with our forefathers, with the people who've left up the legacy of this country? you know, warts and all, you know? So for me, you have to tell the stories. I mean, there are people literally who want to remove this from the history books. So you know there's something at stake in it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not it's, you know, whether or not what you need to watch every day after work, you know, after your hard job, <laughs> you want to sit down and kick back and enjoy some jujubes and some of this, that's another conversation. But the stories are essential because the stories are us, you know? Um, we can't cheat ourselves of our, own, our ourselves in that way. I'm glad you. I, I'm glad you said what you said because a lot of slave narratives are focused on the Harriet Tubmans, the Frederick Douglass, um, the folks who said, "Enough of this. I'm I'm going. I'm going to yeah. run for my freedom." And and sometimes when we talk about when we talk about those exceptions, we sort of implicitly say that the folks who stayed behind didn't have the gumption didn't have right. the, the drive for freedom. And it's a whole lot more complicated than that. That's right, that's right. You know, Harry Tubman, legend that she is, you know, this, she, I guess the idea is that she helped free maybe a few hundred people, which is profound. But if you look at that as a percentage of the number of people who were enslaved in the state of Maryland, there's other questions to ask yourself. You know, 
And I'm someone whose roots are from the South. My family's from Arkansas. Now, we weren't enslaved in Arkansas. That was part of the migration. But my family was not able to run to freedom because freedom was much farther run, you know, from Louisiana than, than from Maryland. So, you know, I think there's so much dimension to this, this, again, this pervasive system, which was our economic backbone for like over a century. You know, there's more to explore here. And I think, you know, one of my other refrains is that you know, nothing's done more damage to our ability to understand history than in film and television. You know, I think there's still room within television and film to break new ground in these front in these stories, find new ways to feel and think about these people in this time period. You know, the last thing I want is for people to be afraid of history, you know, afraid to, to experience or imagine history in productive ways. But you're right, it does sort of weirdly cast a value judgment on the folks who didn't seem to have you know, the access or even privilege someone like Frederick Douglass had who, you know, was was educated as a child, as a slave, right? That was part right. of how you could conceive of freedom as a thing to aspire to. That's very different right. from most folks, yeah. Brandon, we have an, uh, an audience question. This question comes from George Fleming from Virginia, and he asks, are slave stories for black or white people? As a black man, I don't feel the need to watch them. Um, they're for everyone. I mean, they're, they're stories of history. I feel, you know, we should all feel the freedom to not watch what we want or what don't want to watch. I mean, there's a million things I don't watch, you know, and maybe you just don't have time for it. But I would hate to feel that you're not wanting to watch them had something to do with you being a black man because I'm also a black man and I wanted to write this story and I wanted to receive this story. So I think it's a slightly, for me, like whether or not these stories are valid or valuable actually has nothing to do with the race, racial makeup or racial identification of the viewer, right? It's the fact that it's a reflection of the reality of the history and the country and the world that we live in. You know, Ayanna Jameson, founder of the Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network, told The Post, oh, excellent. Yeah. it's no accident that Kindred was the first of Butler's works to be greenlit for TV. She said, quote, the question is, why are white people interested in this? Black people have been interested in this for a long time. What are your thoughts on that question? Um, you know, it's, it, I mean, I know Ayanna, she's amazing. She's an amazing person. I, I would say that, I guess I'd half challenge that uh -huh. in the sense that all Black art in all the forms, going back as far as we've been telling stories, paint and paint pictures, you know, has taken slavery as its subject at some point, at some crucial point. And it has often been the masterwork of that person. I'm thinking of Beloved by Toni Morrison. I'm thinking of The Known World by Edward P. Jones. You know, I think that um, an interest in stories about slavery, depictions of slavery, representations of slavery, is not a new phenomenon that I would attribute to anyone. Um, I would say, though, that if you look at him, and again, you're I'm sorry that I'm like being a professor right now. That's what I am in my other life. <laughs> you know, if you look at sort of, uh, cultural history, there are these cycles of interest that come and go, right? Um, in the 70s, you're having an important moment about that. It's happening again in the 90s. It's almost like roughly every 20 years it seems to happen. And I would say that when I originally began to go out with Kendra, which I've, I've been trying to make this show literally for 
I think we figured out like uh, since 2010, like 12 years, you know, and we, and FX came aboard in 2016. It, at that time, I could not get, you know, I could not pay someone to listen to me talk about Kindred, <laughs> the fact I want to make this TV show, you know, but I will say that something happened in the summer of 2020 when the project did sort of seem to get elevated very quickly, right? Because I think that we had to kind of move through the years between 2016, and I guess I wouldn't say up until now, to sort of wake up to the fact yet again, you know, that we have some unresolved issues amongst us. And uh -huh. suddenly there is a desire to talk very openly about the origins of what might be the social wounds we're all managing in this moment, right? So I think there is a very easy answer, which is that in 2016, a lot of folks felt like they were backsliding through time. And suddenly here was this book and this television show that wants to be based on the book that was giving people an opportunity to meditate as one wants to do, right? Uh, in the in with story on what was happening in the world around them. So maybe that's that's that would be my response, my gentle response. And and real quickly, because we are out of time, but I can't have you here and not ask you this. I mean, Kindred was marketed as a as a miniseries, but it's actually a multi-season show. The show hasn't hasn't been renewed yet, has it? Will it? Not not yet. Well, you know, the writers, ironically enough, you're I was speaking to you from the writers' room. So we have writers in literally in the next room kind of banging out a second season, but we're still waiting for our season pickup. So, you know, this is why I'm begging people to keep watching and keep talking about it um, because that's that's how it works now in the world of streaming. Um, uh -huh. But we're hoping, we have a whole plan, we have plans and plans for many seasons, but yes, the first season only covers about a third of the book. For those yeah, because like, at, at, yeah, uh, FX, y'all better renew this because the, the cliffhanger at the end of season one, I'm like, <laughs> Kevin! <laughs> brutal it's brutal yeah oh yeah. my god brandon jacobs jenkins writer and executive producer of kindred thank you so much for coming to k-part on washington you. coast thank Live. you so much jonathan have a great day thanks for listening to k-part it's produced by nick roberts we'll have new episodes for you every tuesday i'm jonathan k-part you can find me on twitter at k-part j